Well, good morning, church, and welcome to Easter Sunday, part two, <laughs> because, you know, for centuries the church has understood that the, the events that we celebrate on Easter morning, they're too important, they're, they're too rich, they're too deep and significant to confine their celebration to a single morning. And so for centuries, the church set aside full, a full two months every calendar year to celebrate the resurrection. Seven Sundays, 49 days stretching from Easter morning through till Pentecost morning. And on each of those Sundays, they began to take the Easter event and, and, and explore it from all of its many rich and diverse angles. It takes you to the very center of what it is that we believe. Without Easter, nothing else that we do the rest of the year really matters or really makes any sense. It's the center of the message. And just to be clear, when it comes to to celebrating Easter, Resurrection Sunday, what we're celebrating is, is not some kind of contemporary, palatable nonsense about new life like I don't know, grass poking up in the gaps in the sidewalk, or isn't it nice that the crocuses are appearing again after a long winter? The possibility that, that you get a fresh new start. Now, we're celebrating the resurrection of a man from the grave, not resuscitation, not reincarnation. This is a man who was executed, taken down from the cross, wrapped in grave clothes, stored away in a tomb for three full days, and then Easter morning, ta-da, God's back. And it's a victory celebration. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is have you look again at the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for these past weeks. It was our guide through Holy Week. So reach for your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. And I want to look at the reports of three of the very first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb in Jerusalem. And this is key, because when you look at how the story of Easter, in fact, when you look at the entire story of Christianity, the gospel itself, about how it gets out in the world, God's chosen tool to get the good news out is through witnesses. You have the testimony of three eyewitnesses here. And hundreds and hundreds of them in the pages that follow uh, encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus, at specific times, in specific places, in specific locations. All of those accounts are written down, and we have them. 2,000 years later, we have the testimony not just of those first eyewitnesses, but we have layered in on top the testimony of, of tens of thousands, now millions of people, who say their lives have been affected and forever changed by an encounter with the living Christ. So in the verses that follow in John's account, we're going to look first at the testimony of those early witnesses. But then towards the end of our message this morning, I want to think with you not just about those ancient witnesses, but about God's contemporary witnesses, about the ongoing revelation of God in the lives of his people in this century, in, in this place, even in this building, and especially in your lives. 
God's revelation didn't begin or end with the writing of of Scripture. It didn't begin or end with the appearance of Jesus in the pages of history. It continues, and, and it continues in you. And I want to think about your testimony. But let's start first with those early witnesses. John chapter 20, we're going to look at, at Mary Magdalene. Now Mary is a, is a woman who is, who is part of that early crowd of disciples that followed Jesus. Not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's a bunch of Marys in the Bible. All of them are important. But Mary Magdalene is a woman who earlier in Jesus' ministry had been healed. Her life had been, been changed. Not just physical healing, even though her ailment was significant and painful. But the nature of her ailment meant that she had been socially cast aside, ostracized. She was considered unholy, untouchable. Some of you come from countries where you know that, what that means. To be part of the untouchable caste, that was her. When, when she was healed physically, she was also healed from all of that. She was accepted. She was enfolded back into the family of humanity. She was seen again as a whole person. And she followed Jesus ever since. She was present at the trial of Jesus, one of the few. She was present as Jesus was crucified. She looked on him as he was mocked and beaten and then lifted up. In fact, Scripture mentions her by name as, as one of the very few disciples who was there at the end. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the author of this gospel, the gospel of the beloved, John, who calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Here she is now, a few days later, early in the morning, it's still dark, she's making her way to Jesus' tomb. It's part of the religious observance of the early Jewish people that, that they would come to the tomb every day for seven days to pray and uh, and to respect and to honor those. And you can imagine probably the mood that she was in. After everything that she had just seen. She can't have had much sleep over the past few days. She, she stumbles there in the dark, and when she gets there, her, her response has to be shock. She gets there, and, and the tomb has been rolled away. And her first impulse, well, what would your first impulse would be? It would be like coming to the coming to the gravestone of, uh, of a loved one and finding it kicked down. Your first response is shock, uh, revulsion, a sense of being violated. Have you ever been robbed? Have you ever had your house or your car broken into, something taken from you at work? That, that sense of violation, how dare they? In the darkness of the early morning, she comes and there's that sense of shock and she just assumes somebody has desecrated the tomb and they've stolen the body away. One more offense. As if everything that she'd gone through in the past few days wasn't enough. And so the Bible picks up the story. This is in verse 11, if you want to follow along. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And the Bible uses the word angel. It's the same word as messenger. I don't think she recognized these as divine, angelic beings. She just knew that there were two people in the tomb, which confirmed her feeling that this tomb had been opened and had been desecrated. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've taken him. In other words, somebody's stolen the body of Jesus. Having said that, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Here's Mary. 
overcome by grief, sleep-deprived, in a state of shock, never expecting to see him alive. Because remember this, there is nothing in the life of a, of a first century Jewish person or of a, of a Roman philosopher or of, of a Greek wise person that would lead them to believe that resurrection was a possibility. It wasn't part of their vocabulary. It wasn't part of their theology. It wasn't part of their hope for the future. And it's hard for us to imagine that because uh, people inside and outside of the church both understand the language of resurrection, whether they believe it or not. They didn't. It just wasn't part of what they latched on to. The furthest thing from her mind was that Jesus might be back, might be alive. All she could think of is they'd taken him away. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you're the one, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've taken him so that I can bring him back. And Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and she said back to him with wide-eyed wonder, speaking in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You feel the weight, the, the sense of wonder in that scene? I mean, here is this woman whose life had been absolutely turned around by Jesus. But then she had watched this man who, who had changed everything for, for her go through one of the most violent and, and humiliating forms of execution, murder, that, that human deviousness and evil has ever imagined. And you think about the horror of the scene and everything that she'd experienced and, and the way that her hope and, and her joy had just all leaked away. Now she comes to, to do what she can to give respect and honor to her friend who had died and his body's stolen, taken away. I mean, when it rains, it pours, right? I don't know if you've been through seasons in your life like that. The point in in the world where you've experienced grief that's just so deep and it seems to pile one on top of the next and top of the next and there's just there's no words for it. Or you've had to watch a friend or a family member go through it and, and there's no card at Hallmark that can say anything that will take it away. Have you ever felt like you've been at that place in your life where all of your hopes, the things that used to support you, they just they've all been dashed? Or even your faith itself doesn't seem to be able to hold you up to the place that you wish it could. Or your joy has been taken away. And you feel alone in the middle of all of it. I've got a feeling there are people in the room who have felt that way. And if that's you, you can imagine what it's like for Mary. Completely alone standing in front of a desecrated tomb, weeping, unable to be consoled by the angels themselves, much less some gardener who she's convinced is a grave robber. But I love what comes next. Jesus says one word. What's the word? Mary. What's it like when a child lost hears the sound of their parents' voice speaking their name? When a, when a husband returns from the battlefield and his wife hears for the very first time the voice of her beloved speak her name, what's that like? Mary, 
Jesus says. And her, and her eyes, they, they go wide-eyed. And she says with shock and surprise, and I don't know what emotion, she says, quite literally, my dear teacher, Rabboni, my master, my friend. And in that moment, grief evaporates and turns to gladness. Sorrow becomes joy. This is the testimony of Mary. I've written it in your notes if you want to have a look. I was hurting and He gave me hope. There's her testimony. Boy, that's powerful testimony. I'm not sure whether you can say that. I expect some of you can. If you can, there's a testimony the world needs to hear. I was hurting and He gave me hope. After all, isn't that the point of the resurrection? The world is filled with sorrow and hurt and sin and, and sadness with unmet desires and shattered dreams, with diseases that are unexpected and catastrophic and, and inevitably with death. And Jesus comes and He conquers all of it. He goes to the cross. He takes the full weight of it. He dies. Three days later, ta-da! I'm back. And that's a, that's a victory shout. And, and it's, it's like hope is the victory prize that's given to believers. No matter what life brings you. And be honest, it, sometimes it feels like it brings you a lot, too much. No matter how this life hurts you, know that that's not all that there is. That God is not done. That there's more to you. And there's more to come. And so Jesus comes to us right where we are, right in the middle of all of it. In the middle of the struggle as He did with Mary, and He meets us there, and He gives us hope. Listen, this is the Sunday after Easter, so you're the faithful folk. I mean, the numbers always plummet. We had 500 and what, Emma, last week? 530 people here. Uh, Sunday after Easter, we'll go back to the 375, 400, but you're the faithful ones. So this may feel like a strange thing to say to the faithful ones, but but I know that among those who attend church regularly, because I know the thought occurs in my own life too, there are those who, who still want to say, listen, it sounds good. It, it really sounds good. And, and I've heard it enough times. But isn't it all just so subjective? Somebody has a religious experience, but does that make it true? It worked for Mary Magdalene, but does that mean that it will work for everyone? Or more importantly, that it should work for me? Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, agnosticism, whatever it is, isn't it all just a matter of, of a personal choice? And listen, boy, that, that sounds right. It, it, sounds, it sounds like the way we should talk. It sounds correct. That in the end, you make your choice and I make my choice and we honor each other and it's just a matter of preference and opinion. But if you pause for just a moment, can I suggest that that it's actually something more. When you realize that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a matter of preference. In fact, it's not that at all. It's a matter of truth. And it changes the game. Think about it. I mean, either Jesus rose from the dead or He didn't. That's not a question of preference. It's a question of truth. And as it turns out, it's really an important question. Because the reality is, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you are wasting your time being here today. You might as well go home or go for brunch. Have a nice day. Join everyone else having a nice day. on Not that you're not having a nice day here. Of course you are. 
But if he didn't rise, then the whole thing is a lie and Christians are fools and I am chief among them. I'm a fool. The Bible says as much, 1 Corinthians 15, that the followers of Jesus are to be pitied among all people if Jesus didn't rise from the grave because they have based their lives on a lie. So if you're here today and you're not sure about all of it, you're not sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if it turns out that you're right, then pity us. We're fools. It's ridiculous. But if He did rise from the dead, then that has ramifications for every person in the room. Regardless of what your personal preference is. This one who taught us that He was God in flesh. This one who did things that no one else in history has ever done. Or ever would claim to do. Dead for three days and then alive again. If it's true, then it has profound ramifications. If He didn't rise, you don't have to worry about anything that He said or did. If He did, then really we need to pay careful attention to everything that He said and did. It's not a matter of preference or opinion, but ultimately of truth. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Now listen, most people would say the burden of proof here is on the Christians. You need to prove to me that He rose from the dead. And they're right. They're right. We do. And we will. But it's also true that there is a burden of proof on those who object. You also need to prove that He didn't. If in the face of all the evidence we mustered, if there's not a counter-argument, we need to talk about that too. Listen, there's no question among the, 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 the teeming mass of secular scholars and historians that around 2,000 years ago, an entirely new religious community appeared in the world. It appeared suddenly. It formed virtually overnight. And immediately, hundreds and then thousands of people started claiming that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Even if it meant they would die for the claim, and, and too many of them did. It is the fastest growing movement of people the world had ever seen, and now by the most conservative estimates, it makes up one-third of the population of the planet. So how do you explain it? I mean, if you, if you don't account for the possibility of the resurrection, well, there are other accounts. In fact, there's a good number of accounts, and they fall in in three different areas of possibility. Some people believe that, that that wasn't Jesus who died on the cross. He didn't die there, much less rise from the grave. Muslims, for example, believe that it was an imposter or a lookalike on the cross. That wasn't Jesus. Now, never mind that that's a theory that didn't actually appear until Muhammad came up with it 600 years after all the history, and all the history in between would say just the opposite. Others believe that that it may have been Jesus on the cross, but he didn't actually die there. They, they call it the swoon theory. He was hurt really, really, really badly. I mean, we can't imagine how badly he was hurt. But he fainted. He lost consciousness. They thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb and he wasn't. The explanation assumes that Jesus went through six trials over a hurried period of about 48 hours. No sleep, a brutal scourging, thorns thrust into his head, nails thrust into his hands and his feet, hanging there for hours in the agony on the cross, finally a spear thrust up into his abdomen to pierce the heart and make sure that he was gone. But then he fainted. He was put in a tomb. 
A stone was rolled over in place to prevent anybody from getting in. Guards were appointed, were appointed to stand there because, well, this death was, uh, was orchestrated in part by the powers in Rome, and they wanted to make sure that this tomb was protected. But then you have to imagine that somehow, three days later, this man regained consciousness. He, he heaved that heavy stone aside that he hopped past the guards into the darkness of the night and went merrily about his way. There are other possibilities. and You have to entertain them because it's important. You can entertain the possibility that the tomb, in fact, wasn't empty. Sometimes called the wrong tomb theory. That first the disciples and, and then Mary, perhaps sleeplessness or grief or shock, they went to the wrong place. They were at the wrong tomb. No GPS, no Google Maps. I suppose it's possible. And ever since that day, everybody else who went to check into the account also went to the wrong tomb. If only someone had checked the tomb next door where Jesus was still lying. The obvious problem here, though, is that Rome is involved. This is a Roman execution. Roman guards are appointed there to stand watch. Roman authorities, to say nothing of the Jewish ones, the whole affair of the execution was to put an end to the Jesus movement. At any point in history over the next decades, all they had to do was go to the right tomb and produce the body of Jesus and Christianity dies right there. Third explanation. The disciples made it up. They made it up. Or made it up either because they were mischievous and thought, well, he's gone, let's just create a new religion in his name. Or more possibly, they made it up because they were delusional, hallucinatory. They, they claimed to have seen Jesus alive after he died. Remember, though, that the idea of seeing somebody alive after death, the idea of resurrection is foreign to them. Foreign to Greeks, to Romans, to first century Jews. It's, just, it's not part of what they believe. It wouldn't be there in the palette of colors that they would use if they were sketching out a new religious movement that they made up. And hundreds of people, not one or two, hundreds of people claimed to have seen him. And he ate and he, and he drank and he talked with them. Hallucinations don't eat and drink. In addition, and there's no getting around this, Making up a story of Jesus being alive was not in the best interest of the storytellers. It gets them killed. And countless hundreds of them die for their testimony. As Blaise Pascal, mathematician, put it, I believe, I believe in witnesses that get their throats cut for their testimony. Someone else said, Tom Wright, Early Christians didn't invent the empty tomb and the meetings and the sightings of the risen Jesus. No one was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience could have invented it to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. This is from one of the leading historians and thinkers of the past century. Now the reality is we're, we're certainly not the first generation to want proof of the resurrection. 
fact, that goes all the way back to the very first days. Listen to what John writes about one of his own disciples, about Thomas. You still have your Bibles there. We're in chapter 20. We're going to be in and around verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. doesn't say why. They've been hauled up in the upper room for a while. Maybe he was out on a milk run. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he says, yeah. (laughs) Unless I see him, unless I see him myself and see the hands, see his hands with the marks of the nails, unless I place my finger into those the nail marks and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. So Thomas gets a bad rap. I mean, he's gotten a bad rap for centuries because of his questions. I, I personally am glad that he's there. But aren't you glad that he's there? I'm thankful that God put somebody like Thomas into the story. It's a reality check for the rest of us. I don't want my life to be based on a lie. I don't want to spend my life encouraging other people to base their lives on a lie. Thomas is there as a reality check. Is it believable? Listen to what happens to Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and He said, Peace be with you. And then He said specifically to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Stretch out your hand and place it here in my side. Don't disbelieve. Don't doubt. But believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who he's talking about? You. Sure. You and I. There's His word for you. Blessed are you who have not seen and still believe. You hear Thomas' testimony. It's there in your notes. Mary said of the resurrected Jesus, I was hurting and He gave me hope. Here's Thomas. I was doubting and He showed me the truth. If that's you, you have a powerful testimony and the world needs to hear it. This is so encouraging. It's It's not bad in itself to doubt. Jesus says to Thomas, though, stop doubting and believe. He doesn't say stop doubting and just believe. He says stop doubting. He shows them all the evidence, all the signs. He says now believe. The reality here, the truthfulness of His love for Thomas, visibly evident there in nail-scarred hands and a a nail or a spear-pierced side. Jesus doesn't call Thomas or any of us to blind faith, just stepping out into the abyss. He calls us to a reasonable faith, to faith based on truth, and He does it with grace. That's the testimony of Thomas. All that leads to the very last part of John 20. Have a look with me at verse 30. Now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now here's what's interesting about that last verse in particular. The emphasis John puts on the word belief. You see it there twice. So that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's so important because here's where Christianity 
really stacks out differently from every other religion in the world. What you have here is not a list of things to do, boxes to be checked off, routines and rituals to follow. Instead, you have truth. Truth to be believed. It's the question that's confronting us on days like this every year when we celebrate Easter. Do you believe that He rose from the dead? Do you believe in the resurrection? It's too important just to put it off. There are reasonable answers to your questions. Search them out. Every week, Tuesday night, the Truth Project meets here. Reasonable answers to good questions. Search them out. Find them. It's not a matter just of preference or opinion. It's a matter of truth. But even if you say yes, yes, I believe. I believe that this happened the way that the Bible says that it happened. Jesus rose from the dead. I want to make sure that you understand fully what the Bible means by belief. So lean in a little bit. And hear this. It's possible to believe in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and still live a life that is vastly separated from God. You don't believe me? Scripture is filled with examples. You know the first person to recognize who Jesus was? It was a demon. The devil himself knows who Jesus is. I don't doubt that the devil knows what happened with Jesus. He lost on the cross. He knows about the resurrection. He believes in the reality of what happened. He believes in who Jesus was. He believes in the Word of God. But he's vastly separated from Him. The key question, the question that will change everything, is, in the words of Thomas, is Jesus your Lord and your God. And scores of people, even those who identify themselves as Christians, would look at their lives and say, yeah, I believe it here with my mind, but I don't believe it in my life. In my life and with my choices, I am not honoring Him as my Lord and my God. The ultimate testimony of anyone following Christ, it's there in your notes, I was dead and He brought me to life. And now I honor Him as Lord and Savior. So my final question, question for, for us today. What will be your testimony? We've heard from these witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ, eyewitnesses. What about you? Your testimony is, is rich and uniquely your own, but... When you boil them all down, there's really only two potential testimonies. Both involve a step of faith. One potential testimony is to say, I turn away from Jesus in my life. You may choose to say, I don't believe it, and I'm willing to, to back up that belief. I'm willing to bank my life on it now and forever that there is no resurrection. Or maybe you say, I, I believe it, but I'm only going to believe it culturally. I'm only going to believe it at a few select times of the year. And I'm going to keep Jesus at an arm's length and I'm not going to follow Him in my life. That's one option. That's one testimony. The other is to say in your life, maybe for the first time today, I trust Him as my Lord 
and my Savior. To say with Mary and scores of other men and women, I was hurting and He gave me hope. To say with Thomas, I was doubting and He showed me the truth that God loved me enough to come into this world flesh and blood and and demonstrated that love. And the evidence is there on the cross for the world to see. What more proof do you need? Not a cultural crutch. Not, Not a gateway for nominal Christians to come and be part of some religious club. Trust in Jesus to bring you from death to life, now and and forever. I'm going to invite Rochelle to come and join me on the stage. I'm going to sing a simple song, a beautiful song that she's written about hope and truth and life. And as she sings, I want to urge you, especially if you've never fully trusted Jesus as Lord, right where you're seated, in your heart to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. I don't care how many times you've been coming here Sunday by Sunday. If you've never said it in those words, you, you can say it this morning, my Lord and my God. And the, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your life that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. While she's singing, some of you... Maybe it feels like a long time since you've spoken those words and you want to speak them afresh. You whisper them as well. My Lord, my God. Feel free to join in with Rochelle as she sings as an expression of your heart's trust in Him. And then the close of singing, we'll stand together, pray for each other, and then we'll let your testimony go out into the world for this generation to hear.